Well, our God is faithful, and we praise Him for that. And yet, a part of what we are as a church family together, um, even as, as John gave us in the call to worship, you know, we are, we are connected to other believers uh, throughout the world. They're all a part of our family. And certainly this week, we have been praying regularly for the Covenant Presbyterian Church and the school and the tragedies of, of, that, of this past week that's happened there. And um, I know you're aware of it. I know you've seen it on the news. But can we just bow in prayer right now for our brothers and sisters there and just ask for God's grace? Oh, Lord, we come to you, and, and we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Nashville, especially those of Covenant Presbyterian School and the church, uh, certainly those who have, who have lost children, uh, those who have lost loved ones, as they grieve, as they mourn. Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort to them, that your nearness would gird them up in this time with, with uh, even as we can't imagine the grief that they're enduring. Uh, we, Lord, with this, this evil act, this attack, um, we would pray, Lord, that by your grace, somehow you would use it in Nashville and with the, the gospel churches there, that they would be uh, ready and that they would have a massive impact for you in caring for the hurting and those around that place. And we just lift this entire thing to you. We look forward to your return, Father. We, we say, come, Lord, quickly. And, uh, and as we do this together with our brothers and sisters there, we, we pray, Lord, that out of this somehow, we can't even tell how, that you would just do what you do in bringing about grace and others, that they would come to life in you, that they would turn to you in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, even in the midst of, of grieving and in the midst of that sorrow, we also are looking around and seeing how God is the God who brings about light in the midst of the darkness. That's what God does. And certainly God's using our church family in that way even here in this neighborhood. And so first of all, you might notice there's some palm branches here and other things, and we're grateful because some of this was done yesterday at the, at the uh, church work day, and I'm grateful for all who showed up for that. We had kids running around cleaning things. Some parents were going, wow, my kids walking around cleaning things. Who knew? You know, that, that can happen. Uh, for other people, there, there was, you know, a time to get to know one another, you know. Folks were talking and fellowshipping and, and, uh, and spiffing this place up, and so we praise God for that, and we're thankful for you uh, in, in that, because again, we're here to be growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. And this is an opportune time for us to do that. And, and we'll be talking about that more later as well. But in the, in the midst of it all, I, I feel like, for, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I'm very easily distracted. I'm super easily distracted. I start kind of going into that mode of just kind of getting my, my eyes go from here to here. That's why we need to gather, right? To have our eyes go back up. And, and this, this past week, of course, uh, that came up for, for me and Janet because we, we've got these planter boxes in the backyard. Maybe you've got those, like the, you know, the kind of like above ground, you know, boxes. Um, I think they call them raised beds, like if you know what you're talking about, which I don't. But if you know what you're talking about, raised beds, right? And so we, last kind of month, a few months ago, we planted lettuce, right? And some of our lettuce did well. Some of our lettuce didn't even resemble lettuce. Just sort of like showed up, you know? Uh, and so we're kind of going, what is that? Can you eat that? I don't know if you can eat that. I don't know what that means. And uh, so yesterday, at the, there's a gardening uh, kind of community in Walnut Creek, and we, we drove over there because it was tomato day. It was tomato day. Did you know that? Yesterday was tomato day. So 
I have no, I don't know why I'm even here. And I don't belong here. Like I'm sitting in this lecture like I'm listening to a lecture on tomatoes. <laughs> what happened to me? You know, how did this, how did this happen? But, but here we are. And you start seeing like there are people here that know what they're talking about. Like they do tomatoes. You know what I'm talking about? They're, they're tomato people. And, and, and there's this kind of, all of a sudden, you're kind of sitting there going, man, I really stink. There's this comparison thing that happens. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm a lame tomato person. And they're a happening tomato person. This person actually had like a, a recipe. Get this, a recipe for soil. Some of you are like, of course they have a recipe for soil. You're looking at me like, Chris, why don't you know that? Well, my mind was blown. I'm like, what? And then the stuff they put in there. Like, fish guts? In dirt? You want your tomatoes to grow out of that? Right? But you do. You do. Because it grows a healthier tomato. But, but, but the picture that we see is, as people are walking around and looking at all these things, something else hit me. And that was that God has given us these beautiful things that come out of the ground to demonstrate his abundant grace, his abundant life that he gives in Christ. You know how Paul has talked about that in 1 Corinthians as we've been in this book. You know, you plant it as a seed in the ground and it comes up something different. (laughs) You put it in fish guts (laughs) and it comes up beautiful tomatoes. That's what the resurrection is. That's what resurrection life is about. And so as Paul has been describing this, he's now moving on from there to tell us what this abundant, growing out of the ground, abundant life in Christ looks like. Yes, the resurrection's real. Yes, the resurrection has been demonstrated historically, and it's happened. And yet, in light of that resurrection, we're to live in a certain way. So I'd ask you to go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And and, and Paul has concluded the previous chapter with this important statement that we talked about last week. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding, there it is, in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because of the resurrection. Whatever you're going through, whatever's happening, there's an abounding life that you have because you're connected to Jesus. And so this abounding abundance, what does it look like? And so Paul describes that now as he addresses some questions the Corinthians had in chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. In honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read. First Corinthians 16, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may appoint, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand and see what your word is is telling us here that your spirit would change our hearts and that we would become a people who live out 
this life in you, this gospel life because of Christ's resurrection, may we live it out in a way that glorifies you, that others would know you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your seats. And so this section really is what Paul is, is uh, using to describe this abundant life that comes out of resurrection life and what he spent the entire previous chapter describing. And so when I use the phrase abundant life, I'm, I'm not using it as a catchphrase. Please know that. I know that that phrase travels in a lot of circles. That's not how I'm using it. No, this, this abounding in the work of the Lord that comes off of the end of, of, of the last chapter uh, that's, that's what Paul's describing now. And, and so he's devoted a large portion of the letter to the spiritual gifts from God, given to glorify him and to build up one another. And he's described at length the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And, and really what happens now is we need to understand that when we really see that, we're going to live in a different way. Because when we don't see the resurrection, as we see here in this passage, we, we will lack several things. We're going to lack steadfastness, right? We're going we're to kind of walk around functionally uh, kind of removing ourselves from what God has done or will do even. What God has done in resurrecting Jesus and, and those that rose with him to the reality of future resurrection. And so we remove ourselves from that. And, and what, what happens then is right now becomes everything. We miss the character and nature of God. We cannot see suffering right now in its actual light. Sometimes we even grow to resent God for suffering. But when we're steadfast, it's because we can see the resurrection. And so that, that steadfast way is being continued here. We don't want to slouch out of abounding in God's work. Uh, we don't want to see our toil in the Lord as in our, our labor, our hard work in God in, in vain in any way. And so the abundant life that Paul has described here, rather than the catchphrase version of it, no, this is solidly anchored in what God's done to redeem his people and in the resurrection that he promises to all who are in Christ. So when we see this passage, we're going to be looking at when we live abundantly in Christ, how are we going to live? What are we going to do? How's it going to show up? And, and when we live abundantly in Christ, firstly, we are going to live generously. We're going to live a generous life. We find that in, in verses 1 through 4. Paul's describing the collection for the saints. And, and specifically, we find verse 3, where's he taking the gift? To Jerusalem. Why? Why to Jerusalem? Well, we find in some other portions of Acts and other areas of even history that Jerusalem was probably undergoing a famine at this time. So they did not have sustenance. They didn't have food to eat. And, and they were in dire need. And so here we are, you know, way off in Corinth. The Corinthian church is, again, united to these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And they're saying, we're going to give help. We're not going to let you go without food. We're going to do everything we can to provide and care for you. So then Paul goes on to describe, well, how, how is this uh, collection for the saints to happen? He, you'll notice he's already directed the churches of Galatia in this, and so he's saying, I've already set up how I want to do this, but I'm going to remind you of, of how this is to happen. First of all, first day of the week, put aside and save as you've prospered. So the first day of the week, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Lord's day. He's talking about Sunday, which we would see from various places in the scriptures that that's really when God's people gathered. Uh, there was a transition. It used to be uh, in, in the Old Testament era and, and prior to Christ's resurrection that people gathered on, on the Sabbath or on the seventh day. And, and now, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, that reoriented everyone and everything. And, and so now the gathering was on the first day of the week, on, on Sunday, what we would call Sunday. And so... Um, He's saying, when we gather together on this, at this time, 
you're supposed to be saving. So just continually gather up this offering over time. And you'll notice it's as you may prosper. And you've got to love that because what he's saying is it's not just the wealthy. It's not just the well-to-do. It's not just those who have a lot of, of money or finances or resources. No, it's, it's everybody. No matter where you're at on that spectrum, you can give out of a heart and desire to honor God in your giving. And that's a beautiful New Testament principle. You know, I think a lot of times, especially in our culture, there's a lot of affluence. There's a lot of, you know, people that have a lot of means. And we kind of, you read on the news, you know, well, this billionaire gave, you know, X number of gazillion dollars to do whatever. You know, and you're thinking, oh, I wish I could do something. But this passage tells us no matter where we're at on that spectrum, you know what? God's going to use what you have to give. You recall the, the, the widow that Jesus drew attention to there. In, in Jerusalem, all these different pharisaical religious leaders were coming and they were literally putting their money in the pot as in the clink, clink, the sound was what let everybody know how much they were giving. And there was a pompous way about them. That's right. Look what I'm doing. And they just, you can hear the cash hitting the sides of the metal container. And yet one widow simply has two mites, which is you know, less than a penny, That's all you hear. And Jesus goes, she gave the most. The disciples are going, what are you talking about? She gave the most. And he goes, she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had. So God's economy is different than ours. And Paul is emphasizing that here as well. However you may prosper, whatever that means, the point is, give. Live generously. Why? Because you will never outgive God. God has so abundantly blessed. If you're here today and you're in Christ, God has so abundantly blessed you that in response to him, we are to just freely and openly give. There's a, a theologian, Hiko Oberman, he tells the, a story about the the abundant, wonderful, giving and loving generosity of, of, a, of a rural church in China. And he, he describes how he was with a, a group in Nanjing, China. And on a Sunday, they were visiting various churches in the city. And then an older Chinese woman who had, who had moved to Los Angeles, actually, wanted to visit the church across the river from, from Nanjing. And so it was a very poor church. It was composed of farmers there in China. And so... Uh, there was the, the, the people were gathered at the service. They wanted to hear a word from their sister from the States. And so she, she, she brought greetings from the church in Los Angeles. Again, you know, we're all brothers and sisters. We're together. Isn't that beautiful? And by the way, if you've ever had the opportunity to travel on a missions trip, that is one thing that will strike you right away. No matter what part of the world you go to, when you visit brothers and sisters in Jesus, you are family immediately. I've had the privilege to experience that many times, and I can say from firsthand experience, wherever, you know, whether it's uh, the country of Moldova or, or whether it's Micronesia uh, and everything in between, every time, different cultures, different people, different places, different faces, different circumstances, one family. It's, it's astounding, really. But so here, here she is experiencing this, and she tells about how, how back in, in Los Angeles, uh, God has been at work, she describes to the people in, there in, in the you know, in the kind of the rural area of China. 
And he talked about how the church is, is trying to expand and, and they want to build a larger uh, facility to house more people and to have more people gather together. And, and then after she you know, gave sort of that testimony and, and, and gave her love and expressed the love of the brothers and sisters in Los Angeles to these brothers and, sister in China, and sisters in China, um, you know, the, the, there was a the singing, more singing, the pastor shared. And, and then, then at the close of the worship time, something amazing happened. Mrs. Chang was called back to the front again. And the pastor said her words had thrilled their hearts and they wanted to have the morning offering go to help build the new building in Los Angeles. And so they gathered up together what they had and it probably amounted to a little less than maybe $70 or so. Which, by the way, for them is a lot. And they, with overwhelming joy and overwhelming generosity, gave that gift. And she then brought that back to the church in Los Angeles. And, and then the church in Los Angeles was overwhelmed with, why would they do that? What an act of love. But, that, but that's the heart of caring for one another. And it doesn't matter how much or how little we have, the point is whatever we have, it's the Lord's. And we want to be generous with that. And the way God, God's economy, it's different. I think this little church in China gave more than... Maybe one of the biggest mega churches in the world funding some massive project somewhere, as far as God's concerned. And that's a beautiful thing. So, when we're living out the gospel in an abundant way, when we're abounding in God's work, we're going to freely and joyfully give, especially to the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, uh, we want to live that way. We want to live generously. But not only that, we also want to live personally. And that's the second thing Paul talks about in verses 5 through 7. He says, I'm going to come to you after I go through Macedonia. I'm going through Macedonia. Maybe I'll stay with you. Maybe I'll spend the winter so that you may send me on my way whenever I may go. Notice this in verse 7. I don't want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to remain with you sometime. Isn't that interesting? I don't want to just pass through, he's saying. Why? I want to be with you. There's a face-to-faceness here. He's saying, I don't want to just pass through. I don't want to just check the box. Yeah, visited Corinth. Great. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm going to head to the Mediterranean and catch some, uh, some kind of downtime all by myself away from all you crazy people. <laughs> I mean, you, write, you read the letter, you're like, this is not an easy relationship. This is a hard relationship with the church in Corinth. But what does Paul say? I want to spend time. I want to be with you. Now, part of it may have been because of the reports he's getting. He's like, man, I got to be with you because I need to help you face to face. But here, we don't see that exact tone. It's very much along the lines of, I hope to remain with you for some time. I I want to remain with you. I want to be with you. And I think for, for, for us, we need to keep this in mind. We need to live our lives as believers in this personal face-to-face way with one another. And, and that's not easy. I mean, I, I've had conversations like this with several people now. You know, when the pandemic hit and we had to be isolated, for the introverts among us, it was like, thank you, God, finally. And by, there's a place for introverts. We need introverts. We need, we, need, we need every kind of person, right? God, God calls different people with different gifts and different bents, and that's great. But for the introverts among us, it was like, it was a relief. Like, oh, phew. You know, and then, was, then all of a sudden we started gathering again. It was like, there was almost like a disappointment. Like, oh, man. Here we go. I got, I got to go back in now. You know, uh. 
I think for all of us, we need to recognize that, yes, you don't, your God is not called, if you're an introvert, you are not called to be an extrovert, all right? Any more than if you're an extrovert, you're not called to be an introvert. We're called to live out what God's made us to be. However, all of us, regardless of that, we need to be involved in one another's lives. And our culture, man, we're like so excellent at knowing people and not connecting with people. We're so good at that. If that was a career, we would, most of us would be doing really well. You know, matter of fact, you know, social media, and I'm using social with quotes, people, big time, um, is really designed to do what? To let you interact with each other without having to see each other. Yeah, I want to know what's going on in your life, but don't make me talk to you. Really? Sure, I'd love to see your vacation photos, but you want me to, like, interact with you? Like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just not feeling it today. I'm really not. That's the zone we get into very easily. And we got to be careful. Um, And I love how, matter of fact, go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is one of the best summaries of what we are to be about as a church. I mean, any church should be about this. Acts 2, verse 42. Uh, and this is, you know, there's been a, you know, this Peter's given his sermon. All these people have repented. They're gathering together. The church is, is planted, you know, and, and just, just overflowing with grace and joy. People are repenting. They're being baptized. And uh, as people are being saved and turning to, to, to the Lord, You'll notice in verse 42, we get a description of what they're doing. What did the early church do? Well, we find it here in Acts 2.42. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what a church should be about. You'll notice they're not just devoting themselves to it, which they are, which, which really means to take your heart and mind and go, I know I'm tending to go over like this. I'm going to grab my mind and my heart and I'm going here. I'm devoted to this. It's deliberate. It's on purpose. It takes energy. You'll notice that it's not really they're devoting themselves. They are continually devoting themselves. It doesn't just happen. It's, there's a, there's a, a, way, a sense in which it's a discipline. It's one of the disciplines given in the scriptures for the Christian life. We're to, we're to pursue these things. But notice, what, what are they pursuing? The apostles' teaching. So when they gathered, the teaching of the apostles was brought forward. It's similar to what we're doing right now. Brought out. Given. A lot of it was by oral tradition early on. In here, you know, we have the apostles actually there. Later, the apostles would write things down. We've been in 1 Corinthians. That's written by the apostle Paul. The apostles' teaching, what, what, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, what are they teaching? What are they saying? Um, to fellowship, there we go, fellowship. That, that's the word that means to join together in an effort in relationship, uh, a fellowship. The idea is, uh, the, the, the term is actually koinonia. But, but if I was to, you know, in, in, in the first century, if I was going to engage maybe in, in, in beginning a vineyard, I was starting that, and I wanted partners in that to invest resources, time, labor, effort in making this the best vineyard possible, we would be in a koinonia together. It's, it's, it's laboring for a purpose. It's also relational. 
of fellowship. We, we talk with one another. We gather together. We interact with one another. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We use the gifts that God's given each, each of our spiritual gifts, in order to build up one another. That's fellowship. Breaking of bread, that's the Lord's table. And prayer, that is seeking God together. In this prayer, uh, there's a lot of different places in the Bible where we talk about individual prayer before God. Jesus would go off to pray. He would spend time with the Father in prayer. But this is corporate prayer. This is all of us together, praying together. That's important. You know, we grow in different ways corporately together in prayer that individual prayer, we, we wouldn't grow in the same way. But, but there's a personal element. And so here back in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, as Paul is talking about this, he's saying, I'm not just willing to pass through. I want to spend time with you. I want to be with you. And so my question for, for each of us today would be this. How are you devoted to fellowship with other brothers and sisters? What are you doing to connect? And, and that can happen a lot. You know, people will come through and it'll be like, well, you know, I'm just, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm connecting. And, and sometimes it's hard because you're, you're trying and it's, it's not working out. I understand that. And, and, and so there's ways in which to try to go out of your way to meet and talk with people. But for some people over the years I've talked to, and essentially it's kind of this. Um, I'm sitting on this chase lounge lying here going, Lord, bring me fellowship. Like, I'm not doing anything. It's back to that concept of, you know, the, kind of the, the tanning bed spirituality, right? I'm laying here. Lord, do it to me. But do it quickly, because I got to go. You know, it's kind of one of those ideas. And, and that's not, no, this is devoted to. So you're like going out of your way to engage with people. And, and sometimes it might be, well, there's a, there are community groups that meet. Yes, that's important at various times, various places. Um, but sometimes those don't work. I understand it. Uh, maybe it's just you calling someone up and saying, hey, let's get together. Let's grab lunch and go to the park and talk. Let's Go to Pete's. Have them over for dinner. Uh, don't do dinner. Go somewhere and go to a tomato lecture with them. <laughs> Why not? Why not? If the lecture's boring, you can talk more. I mean, it's fine. You know, they're, they're, plant people are laid back. They really are. They're laid back. It's great. So, but whatever it would be, are you going out of your way to do that? And if not, realize the lack of fellowship in your life very well might be that you're not devoting yourself continually to it. And it's time to make a change. Because abundant life in Christ reflects itself, shows itself, demonstrates itself uh, in, in living personally with other brothers and sisters. Okay, so when we live abundantly in Christ, we live not only generously and not only personally, but we also live watchfully. And we find that in the second part of verse 7. Notice, he's saying all this stuff. How does the phrase in, in verse 7 end? If the Lord permits. Huh. That's a big phrase. If the Lord permits. It, it, it demonstrates God's sovereignty. God is one who rules over all. Yeah, Paul's got plans. You notice Paul isn't passive. He's not going to go, oh, I'm just going to, I don't know. Wherever I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Not sure what, what that's going to be, where that means. Paul, no, he has plans. I'm going to go to Macedonia, 
And, and then maybe I'm going to stay with you at the winter, maybe. And so he's got, he's got an, he, he needs to visit churches. He's an apostle. So apostles, unlike a pastor teacher, an apostle was over a lot of different churches. He was going from place to place, church to church, ministering, caring for, teaching, discipling, etc. So he, he needed to make his way around different places. However, he also realized God's in control of what happens. God's got it. And and by the way, isn't this a pattern throughout Scripture? Remember when Abraham, by faith, obeyed God and traveled to an unknown land? Uh, We find that in in the ways that, um, you know, Paul also is sort of like leaving and going various places, trusting God. And, uh, you know, there are other times when Paul was not allowed to do things by the Lord. God, God stopped him. There, there's a time in Acts 16 where, where the Holy Spirit specifically said, no, you're not going to Asia. Well, but Paul wanted to go to Asia. Now the Holy Spirit said no. So again, this is, it's up to God. So, so, you know, I think the proverb says it well when it says, you know, we plan our ways, but the Lord guides our steps. And so we need to be watchful. Like, Lord, what, what do you Want? How are you leading? Help, help me to trust you. Help me to seek you first in these plans. And then if they come about or don't come about, rather than it being getting angry and going, God, I did my part. I obeyed you. Now you're supposed to bless what I want to do. That's not the gospel. I mean, there's a lot of people who claim to be saying the gospel that would teach something like that. Certainly the word faith movement would say, hey, because you're a little God with a little G in front of it, you can actually, as God spoke the universe into being, so you too can speak your reality into being. And if what you speak doesn't happen, uh, you must have weak faith. You need stronger faith. You know, one of the best ways you can show your stronger faith is by sending me money. It's very convenient how the business model works for them. But that's not New Testament gospel living. Here it's, we plan our ways. We do. We seek to honor God. We want to take what he's given us because it's all his and we want to use it for his glory. And we bring to him those things and we seek him in those things. And then if the Lord permits, that comes about. And and if the Lord does not permit, you know what it means? It's better. I don't know if I showed this to you before, but um, I remember when Sophia, our, our middle kiddo, was getting her driver's license, you know, and we were driving over to Pittsburgh and going over there to, you know, kind of do the test. And there were some inst- uh, driving evaluators that you wanted and some you didn't. You know, so we were, and of course, word of mouth among students. It's like, well, you want this one, but you don't want that one. And so I remember we got there a little early. We're sitting there in the front. And, you know, she, she was nervous. She was nervous. And I, and I look at her, and by the way, please know, I don't always parent like this. Sometimes I look at her and I'm like, I have no idea what to say. Okay, but in this moment, I think the Spirit prompted me to say something along these lines. Honey, you're about to go in there and take your test. And if it's God's will, you are going to get your driver's license today. And if it's not God's will, you don't want your driver's license today. And she looked at me like, <laughs> yeah. Right, at first. But then she caught herself, and she was like, huh, you're right. Um, 
I believe that works so well. I used it on my second daughter, Grace, as well, when she went to get her test. Did I, did I say the same thing? I see I did. So once I had held on to that one. <laughs> but that's it. It's very freeing, isn't it? Because here you are. Okay, Lord, if you want it to happen, great. If you don't want it to happen, why would I want it to happen? Like, your, your no is better than my self-imposed yes. And can we take our plans and do that the same thing with God? That can be hard, right? It can be painful sometimes. You know, in this church family right here today, this morning, in this room, we have brothers and sisters who are dealing with terminal illness. We have brothers and sisters who are, who are facing deep, deep financial crisis. We have amongst us here people who have, have uh, sought God repeatedly in an area of prayer and experienced loss after loss. So this perspective of if the Lord permits demonstrates a trust in God, demonstrates a reality of understanding his character, who he really is, knowing that we can trust him even through times of deep and painful difficulty. We don't always know the outcome. And even then, sometimes the outcome is not what we would desire. But do we trust him? And here we see this demonstration of of faith. Paul is trusting God, if God permits. And he's actually taking his, his, uh, what we would call his sort of ministry ambitions to God, going, this is what I want to do, Lord. And if you permit, I would praise you for that. When I see that kind of trust, it makes me think of someone in, in, uh, from, a, from, well, several centuries ago. His name is George Mueller. And George Mueller was, a, 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 was not a, a great person of faith or good character. He was a young boy who grew up in Germany in the early 1800s. Uh, he would steal money from his dad periodically. As a teenager, he'd, he sneaked out of a hotel twice without paying for the room. And one time he was caught by the police and put in jail. And um, he actually later would kind of go into a Bible college setting, but he wasn't really a believer at the time. And so he would go to bars, he'd drink, he'd gamble, he'd be the life of the party. He would make fun of people, especially to make fun of Christians. And then a friend invited George to go to an off-campus Bible study. And so he he thought, well, this will be amusing. Sure, I'll go. And yet for the first time, he actually saw in the scriptures the truth of who God is, who Christ is. He sensed that God was calling him to something different. And before the end of that week, he had kneeled by his bedside and, and, and confessed his sins to God and received forgiveness of his sins in Christ. And he was a different person. And then God gave him a heart for orphans. He started some of the earliest orphanages in, the, in, in, in Europe. And he would pray and he'd ask God for needs. But here's the thing. Mueller was really interested because he says, Lord, I trust you, so I'm going to go to you first. So rather than publish in his support letters and, and, and updates of people what he needed, what Mueller determined to do is I'm going to go to God first in prayer and then my letters will be, look at what God did. That was how he approached it. And so, as an example, there was one, one, one morning, 
early in the morning at the orphanage and uh, he got some news. So the children were all dressed. They were ready for school. And the house mother comes in and tells George Mueller, there's no food for the kids. There's nothing. And so George said, take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. And then George went in there. He prayed. He thanked God for the food and he waited because he knew God would provide for the children as God always had. And by the way, he had done this several times. There are other things. This is just one example. Within minutes, there's a knock at the door. Uh, Mr. Mueller, uh, I'm a baker. And last night I couldn't sleep because I knew you'd need this bread this morning, so I baked three batches for you and I'll bring it in right now. That was the night before. He didn't even know the need yet. Within minutes... After that, there was another knock at the door. It was a milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage and the milk was going to spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. So he asked George if he could use some free milk. (laughs) And so George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk. It was just enough to feed the 300 thirsty children. And you look at that, you're like, whoa! What's going on? Well, here's the thing. That's not all of George Mueller's story. So you see that part, and you're like, yeah, that's right. And so if you do it, it happens every time. No, he also had disappointments in his life. He had relational disappointments. His, his wife died uh, at, at an early age. He experienced grief. He experienced heartache. And yet his heart before God through it all was, if the Lord wills. So let's live that way. Not because we're simply supposed to, not because it's simply a command given by God, but because of who Jesus is, because of the resurrection, because he's defeated death, and we can live aboundingly and abundantly in him. So when we live abundantly in Christ, we're going to live generously, we're going to live personally, we're going to live watchfully, and and lastly, we're going to live courageously. We find that in verses 8 and 9. Notice what he says. I'm going to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. He's like, I'm in Ephesus right now. I'm going to stay in Ephesus. There's a wide door. It's wide open. My, my, uh, the ministry of the gospel is going forward in beautiful ways. And you would think he'd close the sentence there. But notice, the sentence doesn't close there. It goes on. Look at how, how it concludes. And there are many adversaries. <laughs> You're kind of going, what? You know, it, this is a wide door. That's exciting. It's a wide door for service that's open. That's exciting. It's a wide door for effective service that's open. Wonderful. And yet, there's many adversaries. You're almost looking at Paul's sentence there and you're going, how did Paul know that God had opened such a door to him? Certainly it would be the fruitful nature of his time in Ephesus and building up God's people in the faith. But there was another key indicator. There weren't simply adversaries. There were many adversaries. And you think, well, what were those adversaries like? Well, in Acts 19, we get a, a little picture of that. Go ahead and turn there if you would. Acts 19, we'll begin in verse 23. And so Paul has come to Ephesus and... Uh, The church has been planted. Amazing things are happening. 
um, the word of God's going forward. People are being saved. He's preaching. He's teaching. And yet in verse 23, we find that there's some things happening in the town. And this, actually, it wasn't a town. It was a major city at that time. And here's what, here's what it says. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing in no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship would even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord to the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. So you can see, there's a major uproar. There is major opposition. Why? Because Paul is saying, gods made with human hands aren't really gods. And that really offended Demetrius, because guess what he did for a living? He made gods. And so now his business is going down. There's this massive revolt. And yet, notice this, in the midst of all that, what does Paul want to do? He wants to go into the assembly. I'm glad the disciples didn't let him. See, Paul's just eager, like, yeah, I'm going in. It also shows that even though Paul was an apostle, people around him loved him and said, no, no, don't. (laughs) You know, I got you. Hold him back. A a lot of things came about as a result of this whole um, kind of series of events. Eventually, the, the town clerk was called in. And the town clerk said, um, hey, you're causing a riot. And there's this thing. We're under Rome right now. And this Pax Romana thing, it does not go over well to have a riot. And so let's just cut this off. Um, and so that assembly was, was dispersed after that. Um, but after that uproar, um, Paul, Paul, you know, sent for you know, the other followers. And, and if anything, you know, rather than just simply say, you know what, by the way, this is just one example of the opposition. Earlier in the chapter, we find other elements of opposition. It didn't cause Paul to take off. Like, opposition was not, oh, God must want me then to bail. And, and I, it seems like Paul knew to some extent that when there was opposition, when there were adversaries, when there were even many adversaries, he, he, he actually had an idea. He knew what he was doing in terms of being in God's will. And so I think we need to ask the question, you know, when you and I, when we experience opposition or adversaries in our path, what does that indicate to us? I mean, do we encounter adversity or opposition in the culture around us and say, wow, that's a wide open door for ministry. Or is our tendency somehow more, oh, wow, I'm receiving opposition. I must be outside of God's will somehow. 
You know what's implicit in that? It's almost like if it's smooth and easygoing, then I'm in God's will. But if it's rough or hard or difficult, then I must be outside of it. And that's not how the Bible describes the Christian life. Where do we get those ideas? I don't know. I mean, we've experienced it here. Where, where do we live? Hi, folks. We live in California. Maybe you've noticed that. Let's get more specific. We live in the Bay Area of California. Is there opposition? Yeah. Are there many oppositions? Yeah. You know what that means? It's a wide open door. I don't know. A lot of people are like, no, there's opposition. You know what? I got to get out of here. I am gone. There's too much opposition. And by the way, there can be solid biblical reasons to move. I am not the Holy Spirit. I'm not your conscience. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. However, one thing we learn from this passage is just because there are adversaries to the gospel, even if there are many of them, it doesn't mean that's our cue to leave. If anything, the presence of many adversaries may well be an indicator of a wide open door. A wide open door for service. A wide open door for effective service. And so we need to ask that question. What am, what am I here to do? Am I here to serve God, to love others as a light in a dark world? Or instead, is my life actually set, centered on living as comfortably as I can? If we're living abundantly in the gospel, if we're living in light of the resurrection of Jesus, his finished victory that is ours, then we're going to give with joyful freedom and we're going to seek what God permits more than what we demand. And when we find adversaries, we're going to see that it might be an indication that we're actually exactly where we're supposed to be. Let's live this way in the days and weeks ahead, especially as we look to celebrate that very resurrection next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look to you to uh, teach us and guide us and help us to grasp these things. And may you be glorified as we live abundant gospel lives in Christ for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.